before my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday, and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight, I am revisiting an author, a first for this podcast, because many classic authors have more than one classic work under their belt. Tonight, I am revisiting an author from the Thursday Offbeat episodes. Back in season one, for episode 56, called Galileo Frankenstein, I read Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's history about Galileo's famous trial and his defence. Mary's writing skills and historian skills were so well known she was entrusted to write many entries about historical figures, and each entry was perfect. Tonight I am reading Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, Mary's first ever novel, published 1818, a work of incredible gothic horror fiction that is still devoured and beloved today, especially by the dark academia folks. And if you love dark academia, or if you have a dark academician in your life, check out season one, episode eight of this podcast, when I covered that new, but I think enduring aesthetic. The Frankenstein story Well, you know it. Victor Frankenstein, a well-to-do young scientist from a Geneva family, becomes obsessed with alchemy and the materials of the world and through a series of very unorthodox experiments, creates a sentient creature, a monster, whose life is a misery. The monster escapes Frankenstein's laboratory but is shunned everywhere because he is hideous and he comes to focus all his sadness, loneliness, on Frankenstein, coming in and out of Frankenstein's life in the most awful ways. That's the gist, but you should read the whole story, because it is a sensational thriller, with a plot that is so clever, not to mention all the deep philosophy that is explored about the state of humankind and what it takes to be a good person. Before I get to reading, a bit of background about Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born 1797 in London, and her mamma died a month later. Mamma's intuition deserted her and her first husband was a drunken cad who beat her. That marriage ended. She had a child out of wedlock and then remarried, successfully this time, to William Godwin, a journalist, writer and radical political thinker, who wasn't very good with money, but he treated Mama with great respect. When she died, he did his best to educate Mary, who became a widely read and very accomplished young lady. William Godwin said of his daughter Mary that she was, quote, singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire for knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. End quote. What a lovely thing for a father to say of a daughter. William Godwin had remarried when Mary was four, 
and she never really had time for stepmama. Didn't care for her much at all. At 16, Mary met 21-year-old Percy Bysshe Shelley, a fan of her father's radical political thinking and romantic poet. You know Shelley. He wrote the sonnet Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. That's all I remember. But this episode is not about Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's about his bride, Mary. So Mary and Percy used to meet at her mother's grave, and that's where they got it on. Very risque for 1814, and Mary became pregnant and had a little boy, Percy, when she was just 17. She thought Shelley had loads of money and could pay off all her father's debts, but Shelley's family wouldn't let him near their wealth. Things turned sour. William Godwin disapproved of the union, so Mary was kind of cut off from her family, and there was Shelley, who didn't have any money. At 18 years old, Mary miscarried at seven months, a baby daughter, which led to a serious depression for Mary. But finally, when she was 19, Shelley's grandfather died and left him a bunch of cash, and Mary and Shelley had a second child a healthy baby boy named William. They married, and off they all went to Lake Geneva to stay at Lord Byron's rented villa. It proved a wet, ungenial summer, Mary Shelley said. And they all sat around reading German ghost stories in the Phantasmagoria, which I will explore on another episode of this podcast. When they had finished reading all of those, It was Lord Byron who suggested that they write their own, a kind of competition to come up with a terrifying story. Who could write the best? Frankenstein is what Mary came up with. So good that she polished it, and it was formally published in 1818, and it's never been out of print since, because it is an amazing work. It's a brilliant book not just because of the story, but because of the quality of her writing. She had such a command of language. I'm going to read part of chapter four and all of chapter five. This is a portion of the book that is written from the perspective of Victor Frankenstein, and we are going to join him in his laboratory. And we meet the monster. Let's begin. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted, if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries. I revolved these circumstances in my mind and determined thenceforth 
to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which relate to physiology. Unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm, my application to this study would have been irksome and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. My attention was fixed upon every object, the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and the brain. I paused, examining and analysing all the minutiae of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life, until, from the midst of this darkness, a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius, who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm is true. Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labour and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labour, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp. Not that, like a magic scene, it all opened upon me at once. The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavours so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search 
than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life, aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted. That cannot be. Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent, as I then was, to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. When I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies of fibres, muscles and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labour. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself or one of simpler organisation, but my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt of my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect, yet when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mathematics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundations of future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say, about eight feet in height, and proportionally large. After having formed this determination, and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards like a hurricane in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, 
although I now found it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardour. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. Sometimes, on the very brink of certainty, I failed. Yet still I clung to the hope which the next day or the next hour might realise. One secret which I alone possessed was the hope to which I had dedicated myself, and the moon gazed on my midnight labours, while, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave, or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay? My limbs now tremble, and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. It was indeed but a passing trance that only made me feel with renewed acuteness so soon as, the unnatural stimulus ceasing to operate, I had returned to my old habits. I collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profaned fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work near to a conclusion. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest, or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. And the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father. I know that while you are pleased with yourself you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as proof that your other duties are equally neglected. I knew well, therefore, what would be my father's feelings, but I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. I wished, as it were, to procrastinate all that related to my feelings of affection until the great object, which swallowed up every habit of my nature, should be completed. I then thought that my father would be unjust if he ascribed my neglect to vice or faultiness on my part, 
but I am now convinced that he was justified in conceiving that I should not be altogether free from blame. A human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind, and never to allow passion or a transitory desire to disturb his tranquillity. I do not think that the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections, and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. If this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquillity of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru had not been destroyed. But I forget that I am moralizing in the most interesting part of my tale, and your looks remind me to proceed. My father made no reproach in his letters, and only took notice of my silence by inquiring into my occupations more particularly than before. Winter, spring, and summer passed away during my labours, but I did not watch the blossom or the expanding leaves, sights which before always yielded me supreme delight, so deeply was I now engrossed in my occupation. The leaves of that year had withered before my work drew near to a close, and now every day showed me more plainly how well I had succeeded but my enthusiasm was checked by my anxiety, and I appeared rather like one doomed by slavery to toil in the mines, or any other unwholesome trade than an artist occupied by his favourite employment. Every night I was oppressed by a slow fever, and I became nervous to a most painful degree. The fall of a leaf startled me, and I shunned my fellow creatures as if I had been guilty of a crime. Sometimes I grew alarmed at the wreck I perceived that I had become. The energy of my purpose alone sustained me. My labours would soon end, and I believed that exercise and amusement would then drive away incipient disease, and I promised myself both of these when my creation should be complete. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, 
Beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun-white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardour that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavouring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept, indeed but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth, in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her, but as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of the flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead. My teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed, when, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some inarticulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, but then those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion. It became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I passed the night wretchedly. Sometimes my pulse beat so quickly and hardly that I felt the palpitation of every artery. 
At others, I nearly sank to the ground through languor and extreme weakness. Mingled with this horror, I felt the bitterness of disappointment. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me. And the change was so rapid, the overthrow so complete. Morning, dismal and wet, at length dawned, and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes the Church of Ingolstadt, its white steeple and clock, which indicated the sixth hour. The porter opened the gates of the court, which had that night been my asylum, and I issued into the streets, pacing them with quick steps, as if I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared every turning of the street would present to my view. I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although drenched by the rain which poured from a black and comfortless sky. I continued walking in this manner for some time, endeavouring by bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps, not daring to look about me. From Coleridge's ancient mariner, like one who on a lonely road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Continuing thus, I came at length opposite to the inn at which the various diligences and carriages usually stopped. Here I paused, I knew not why, but I remained some minutes with my eyes fixed on a coach which was coming towards me from the other end of the street. As it drew nearer, I observed that it was the Swiss diligence. It stopped just where I was standing, and on the door being opened, I perceived Henry Clerval, who on seeing me instantly sprung out. My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed he, how glad I am to see you. How fortunate that you should be here at the very moment of my alighting. Nothing could equal my delight on seeing Clerval. His presence brought back to my thoughts my father, Elizabeth, and all those scenes of home so dear to my recollection. I grasped his hand, and in a moment forgot my horror and misfortune. I felt, suddenly, and for the first time during many months, calm and serene joy. I welcomed my friend, therefore, in the most cordial manner, and we walked towards my college. Clerval continued talking for some time about our mutual friends and his own good fortune in being permitted to come to Ingolstadt. You may easily believe, said he, how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that all necessary knowledge was not comprised in the noble art of bookkeeping. And indeed I believe I left him incredulous to the last for his constant answer to my unwearied entreaties was the same as that of the Dutch schoolmaster in the Vicar of Wakefield. I have ten thousand florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek. But his affection for me at length overcame his dislike of learning, and he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. It gives me the greatest delight to see you, I said. 
but tell me how you left my father, brothers, and Elizabeth. Very well and very happy, only a little uneasy that they hear from you so seldom. By the by, I mean to lecture you a little upon their account myself. But, my dear Frankenstein, continued he, stopping short and gazing full in my face, I did not before remark how very ill you appear, so thin and pale. You look as if you have been watching for several nights. You have guessed right. I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see. But I hope, I sincerely hope, that all these employments are now at an end and that I am at length free. I trembled excessively. I could not endure to think of, and far less to allude to, the occurrences of the preceding night. I walked with a quick pace, and we soon arrived at my college. I then reflected, and the thought made me shiver, that the creature whom I had left in my apartment might still be there, alive and walking about. I dreaded to behold this monster but I feared still more that Henry should see him. Entreating him, therefore, to remain a few minutes at the bottom of the stairs, I darted up towards my own room. My hand was already on the lock of the door before I recollected myself. I then paused, and a cold shivering came over me. I threw the door forcibly open, as children are accustomed to do, when they expect a spectre to stand in waiting for them on the other side but nothing appeared. I stepped fearfully in. The apartment was empty, and my bedroom was also freed from its hideous guest. I could hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me, but when I became assured that my enemy had indeed fled, I clapped my hands for joy and ran down to Clerval. We ascended into my room and the servant presently brought breakfast, but I was unable to contain myself. It was not joy only that possessed me. I felt my flesh tingle with excessive sensitiveness, and my pulse beat rapidly. I was unable to remain for a single instant in the same place. I jumped over the chairs, clapped my hands, and laughed aloud. Clerval at first attributed my unusual spirits to joy on his arrival but when he observed me more attentively, he saw a wildness in my eyes, for which he could not account, and my loud, unrestrained, heartless laughter frightened and astonished him. My dear Victor, cried he, what for God's sake is the matter? Do not laugh in that manner. How ill you are. What is the cause of all this? Do not ask me, cried I, putting my hands before my eyes for I thought I saw the dreaded spectre glide into the room. He can tell. Oh, save me, save me. I imagined that the monster seized me. I struggled furiously and fell down in a fit. Poor Clerval, what must have been his feelings? A meeting which he anticipated with such joy so strangely turned to bitterness. But I was not a witness of his grief, for I was lifeless and did not recover my senses for a long, long time. This was the commencement of a nervous fever which confined me for several months. During all that time, 
Henry was my only nurse. I afterwards learned, knowing my father's advanced age and unfitness for so long a journey, and how wretched my sickness would make Elizabeth, he spared them this grief by concealing the extent of my disorder. He knew that I could not have a more kind and attentive nurse than himself, and firm in the hope he felt for my recovery, he did not doubt that, instead of doing harm, he performed the kindest action that he could towards them. But I was, in reality, very ill, and surely nothing but the unbounded and unremitting attentions of my friend could have restored me to life. The form of the monster on whom I had bestowed existence was forever before my eyes, and I raved incessantly concerning him. Doubtless my words surprised Henry. He at first believed them to be the wanderings of my disturbed imagination. But the pertinacity with which I continually recurred to the same subject persuaded him that my disorder indeed owed its origin to some uncommon and terrible event. By very slow degrees, and with frequent relapses that alarmed and grieved my friend, I recovered. I remember the first time I became capable of observing outward objects with any kind of pleasure. I perceived that the fallen leaves had disappeared and that the young buds were shooting forth from the trees that shaded my window. It was a divine spring, and the season contributed greatly to my convalescence. I felt also sentiments of joy and affection revive in my bosom. My gloom disappeared, and in a short time I became as cheerful as before I was attacked by the fatal passion. Dearest Clerval, exclaimed I, how kind, how good you are to me. This whole winter, instead of being spent in study, as you promised yourself, has been consumed in my sick room. How shall I ever repay you? I feel the greatest remorse for the disappointment of which I have been the occasion, but you will forgive me. You will repay me entirely if you do not discompose yourself, but get well as fast as you can, and since you are in such good spirits, I may speak to you on one subject, may I not? I trembled. One subject, what could it be? Could he allude to an object on whom I dared not even think? Compose yourself, said Clerval who observed my change of colour. I will not mention it if it agitates you, but your father and cousin would be very happy if they received a letter from you in your own handwriting. They hardly know how ill you have been and are uneasy at your long silence. Is that all, my dear Henry? How could you suppose that my first thought would not fly towards those dear, dear friends whom I love and who are so deserving of my love? If this is your present temper, my friend, you will be glad to see a letter that has been lying here some days for you. It is from your cousin, Elizabeth, I believe. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Where on earth has the monster gone? My goodness, it is seriously good writing, isn't it? Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She had a way with words. I can't recommend this book enough. If you've never read Frankenstein, if you've only ever seen film adaptations, do yourself a favour and give it a read. It's simply wonderful. Mary Shelley also had a lot of bad luck, the worst luck you can imagine. 
having moved to Italy with Shelley in 1818 to escape his creditors. He really was bad with money. Two children died and she miscarried another time. Only one of her children survived into adult life. So she had the terrible loss of losing two children to endure all her life. Shelley was dead in a boating accident in 1822. And with that, Mary left Italy and returned to England. Lifted, effectively, from Shelley's spell. She loved him like mad. And I think he felt the same way, notwithstanding all the pants man work that he did. A lot of that was going on. But he always encouraged her writing and recognised her as a real kindred spirit in the literature stakes. Mary remarried, and she had a wonderful life for herself as an author and scholar back in England. She never left a minute unlived, and died at 53 of a brain tumour. She was the queen of gothic fiction, the mother of science fiction, and as accomplished a bird as she could possibly be. Hats off to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. I'm so pleased to now have covered her in the classics episodes of this podcast. And on that note, that's your lot. I'll be back on Thursday, 9pm Sydney time, with something offbeat. And I wish you all a great and safe week wherever you are. As always, thank you so much, all of you listeners, for your kind emails of suggestions and for reviews of the pod. Do keep sharing episodes to the folks in your life who love great writing and the joys of being read to. Till next time then, take care. It really is slippery out there. And thanks for listening.